Good morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today we will be in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Whoa. Yeah. Have a seat. And as you have a seat, if you, uh, if you are new here, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors. And in your chair as you came in, you would have found this blue on one side and kind of grayish green on the other side card. If at some point during our worship gathering, you wouldn't mind taking a few moments and filling out that connect card, uh, we'd love to uh, connect with you sometime in the next few weeks, share with you a little bit of our story, who we are as a church, how the Lord has brought us to be uh, and plant Trailview in this particular area, as well as hear your story. Get to know you a little bit, find out if Trailview is the right spot for you or your family, or answer any questions that maybe uh, God uh, is working in you on, maybe just questions about who is Jesus or or what is the church, or whatever it may be, we'd love to connect with you sometime this next couple weeks, and this is the easiest and best way to do that. On the back side is a prayer card also. Each week as Pastor Brandon and myself gather together on Monday, so the beginning of the week, we look through these and we spend some time specifically praying for the things that you've asked us to pray for you in. And so it, it, the best way for you to do that is to fill out this card right here uh, and, and share those with us. And you can do a few things with this card. You can drop it in that black box in the back right back there. You can bring it directly to myself or Pastor Brandon. He's the one playing the guitar and leading worship this morning for us. Uh, or you can do it with these QR codes here on the bottom and do this digitally, and it'll get right to our database system for us to follow up with you this next week. So if you wouldn't mind at some point, again, uh, filling out that card in our gathering, we'd love to connect with you this next week. Um, we have been on a long journey uh, in the falls uh, over the last few years, walking through the Gospel of Mark. And today, we continue through the Gospel of Mark into chapter 8. We'll get into the beginning of chapter 9. And so as we lean into and dive into this particular passage, there's some interesting things that play out, uh, some interactions with the disciples and Jesus that are rather, uh, maybe not comical, but at least uh, jarring, shocking, something like that. Um, and so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation uh, where you or someone else maybe put their foot in their mouth? As in like they said something that they were immediately like, oh, could I just back up time and 
get those words back. Uh, maybe it was to a spouse or a boss or a coworker or a friend, or you said something and you're like, uh, could we stop and time out and act like I didn't say that uh, kind of moment? Have you ever had that kind of moment? Uh, surely you haven't, but definitely someone you know has. Um, right, right. Um, uh, or or uh, there's a famous American author named Mark Twain who said this, and you may know this quote, and it says, it's better to keep one's mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. And oftentimes, like Mark Twain says there, uh, we find, or we may know, or we find ourselves in situations, or we ourselves, maybe we have, we're that person who has two mouths and one ear, instead of two ears and one mouth, we, we're quick to speak, um, and Jesus says, be slow to speak, and quick to listen, and, and so, uh, maybe so, but we see the disciples' interaction with Jesus in one of those moments, particularly Peter, where he's quick to speak, and not slow to speak and quick to listen. And, and it gets him in, in a challenging, difficult place that, that's very helpful to you and I, uh, and also is very instructive to Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. So as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, um, the whole story of the Gospel of Mark, from beginning to end, Mark, who traveled and did missions and stuff in the first century, uh, and, and he writes Peter's account of the life of Jesus with the one sole intent that the people who would read this would see Jesus as who he is, the Son of God, who came to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice, so that all who would put their faith in him would find forgiveness of sin and eternal life and be, be with God forever in heaven. And so he writes this whole story, this, he writes this account with the aim and intent to reveal to us who Jesus is. And, and we're in a really particular spot that's really about this because just this last week, as we were walking through the Gospel of Mark, we have the first time when any of the disciples just plainly declare correctly who Jesus is, and it's Peter. And Peter says, in what well, we're not going to read it today, he confesses. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And they say, Some other dead prophets. And he says, But who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, or Peter says, You are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And in Matthew's account of this, Jesus responds and says, uh, Peter, uh, well, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has. And, in, and we looked at how J we need God to open our eyes to see, to remove the veil, to see who Jesus is, which Peter now does. He sees Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, who came, the Messiah, who came to be the promised King of God's people of his kingdom, that king who came to usher in the kingdom of God. And so as we walk through the gospel of Mark, our whole aim and intent is to behold our king, Jesus, to, to see him clearly. And there's some really interesting things that go on in this particular uh, account, in, in this particular interaction with Jesus and his disciples, specifically around who he is as that king, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so we're going to look at this as we walk through uh, from 31 all the way to 9-1. Uh, and we're going to see this as the, the main overarching point of the whole thing is that Jesus came to be our sacrifice. That Jesus came to be our sacrifice. That he is the Christ that's been declared, the promised king from, from Genesis chapter 3, the one who had come to crush the head of the serpent, the 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 the, the, unto us a child is born, the kingdom is given, the governance shall be on his shoulders. That, that king is here. It's Jesus. The one who said uh, he came to bring the kingdom of God is there. And he came 
with a particular purpose, a particular mission, a particular uh, way in which he would establish and open the doorways to that kingdom. And it wasn't through uh, the ways the disciples expected. It wasn't as they anticipated or as anyone in their region or area anticipated him to do so. And so as we look at this, Jesus came to be our sacrifice. We're going to see this in two points. Uh, One is that he is the sacrificing king and that we are the sacrificing disciples. And so let's look at that first point, the sacrificing king, uh, as we look at verse 31. Again, putting in a context, um, Jesus just asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the correct declaration, the correct confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Um, Jesus knows, and this is what this whole thing's about, he knows uh, that Peter is right in his confession, but wrong in his understanding of what that means. And that's what this whole thing's about, is seeing what does that actually mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does it actually mean that he is the Son of God? What is the, the Son of God come to do? And so let's look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as Jesus begins to teach his disciples, what does it mean that I am the Christ? What does it mean that I am the Messiah? What does it mean that I am the Son of God? He begins to just say plainly what it means. What, 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 what has the Messiah, the promised King of the kingdom of God, come to do? And he says, the Son of Man. Jesus says, I. You've called me the Son of Man. That's another word, uh, another phrase for the, the, the Messiah. The, the Son of God must suffer. He must suffer Many things. And that begins with rejection, which we've seen little snippets of. The Pharisees, the elders, the priests, the scribes, they oppose, argue, fight with, and set their aim towards killing Jesus. They try to trap him by asking him hard questions. Jesus says, I must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. The leaders of the people of Israel must reject the promised king of the people of God. That he must be killed. That Jesus came to die. That he must be killed. And then after three days, he would rise again. That Jesus, for the first time, just lays it out plainly. Guys, here's why I'm here. Disciples, crowd, here's why I'm here. I came to be rejected. I came to be killed. And I came to rise from the dead. It's it's the whole purpose that God sent Jesus for. This is Jesus laying out His Mission plan for redeeming mankind from sin and death. This is the reason the Messiah, the King of God's people came. To suffer by being rejected, by being killed, 
and by rising from the dead. And this is a shocking revelation to the disciples. So shocking that Peter reacts to Jesus' statement by taking Jesus aside. Like we see Jesus take people aside. We saw him just recently. He encounters the the blind man and he takes him aside out of the city. We see him encounter the deaf and mute guy in the crowd and he takes him aside. Here now though, Peter goes, oh wait a second, Jesus, you said something and we got to correct this. And he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke, to, to call Jesus out as being wrong. He comes and he, he pulls Jesus aside and he, he rebukes him, which means that he is correcting Jesus. He's telling Jesus, no, 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 no. You're the Christ. We just established that. I just made that confession. You're the promised king of God's people. You're the one who came to bring peace upon earth. That's you. You didn't come to be rejected by the elders, to be killed. No, you didn't do you came to be the king, to sit on a throne, to rule for all of eternity. Jesus was rebuked, corrected by Peter. And then Jesus turns and sees his disciples there. Doesn't want them to fall into the same trap that Peter has fallen into, fallen into. And he rebukes Peter. He corrects Peter. And he does this in a rather abrupt way by saying, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of God. But I set mine on the things of, or you're setting your mind on the things of God, or on the things of God, but on the things of of man. Peter corrects Jesus, and that reveals something about Peter. It reveals that Peter has a misconception about what the Christ came to do, about who, uh, what Jesus, this promised Messiah, would do. And we, if you've been to church, you've gone to maybe a Christmas Eve service, or maybe you've been to a church that did Advent. We do Advent here at Trailview. It's the like four weeks leading up to Christmas, and we rehearse and remind ourselves the story of this, this millennium promised king who would come. We rehearse that story every single year, reminding ourselves of this promised one from Genesis 3 all the way through, the, the root of Jesse, the, the, the king that would come, that David would bow down to, the, this promised one that would come, and we end every Christmas Eve by going, that is Jesus, that all of this is about Jesus. And so for these people, for Peter, who grew up in this culture, looking forward to one day when they would see this king arrive, he's rehearsed these, these scriptures, this child that would be born this king that would be given, the the government laid upon his shoulders, the one who would bring peace. And and he's reading all those things in his mind. He's he's been taught all these things about this. And he's like, no, you just got here to do that. You came to bring peace on earth. You came to, to take the government upon your shoulders. You came to establish a kingdom that there will be no end, Jesus. You didn't come to die. You came to sit on a throne and rule with justice and mercy. That's why you came, Jesus. 
See, Peter had a misconception. He, he, along with the people of Israel, had misinterpreted these messianic prophecies as meaning that when this king arrived, that this king would set that kingdom up in that particular way on earth. And it's so much so that the disciples actually jockey for, for, for position in that kingdom. There's a story that plays out in the, in the Gospels where they're walking along the way and they're arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom. And even so much that James and John's mom asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you're on your throne and your kingdom's here and like you're ruling and you kick out all the Romans, can, can my sons be like your right-hand men? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Because they had a misconception about what the Christ, what the Messiah, what the king of the kingdom came to do. And so it's a shocking revelation to the disciples. So much that Peter boldly and foolishly rebukes the Son of God by calling him out as being wrong about the kingdom and about the king. And Jesus responds. And some, some of the difficulty to this maybe have been that these are, if, if Jesus is the Christ, he is, the king of the kingdom, and these are his 12 disciples, his closest friends, his closest uh, students. When he would take his throne in a kingdom-oriented society, his best friends would take those seats of governing and all those kinds of things. And so they find out, you came to die. We're your closest friends, so this is not going to go well for us either. So this is a challenging moment for them as well. And so Jesus responds to Peter. He rebukes him publicly in front of all of the disciples. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That sounds harsh. <laughs> that sounds harsh. Maybe you hear that and you're like, what? wait, 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 wait a second. That's Peter, not Satan. Like the devil, like Genesis chapter 3, devil, like, like Job, devil before God, like that kind of Satan. Like what's going on here? So what is Jesus, why does Jesus call him Satan? Well, the word Satan here, or Satan, can be translated adversary or enemy, someone who's trying to keep you from doing what you were meant or came to do. And the interesting thing is that, that Jesus has already been tempted by Satan to sit on a throne, to be the king over all the kingdoms on the earth. In Matthew chapter 8, this will be on the screen for you if you want to follow along there, you can write it down. In, or sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, this is the story of when Jesus, he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days, and he fasts, and he, he is ministered to by the, the angels, and he, uh, he is uh, away, and he's tempted by Satan. And one of those temptations that Satan lays before Jesus is this. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Jesus has already been tempted to be the king over all the kingdoms of the earth and not die. Don't sacrifice, don't die, sit on a throne and rule forever. Here again, Peter now, maybe a last-ditch effort by Satan, tempts Jesus by saying, no, 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 you didn't come to die, you came to sit on a throne and be king. And Jesus' response 
is weighty and significant because Peter's temptation towards Jesus to sit on a throne and not die is of equal weight and significance. See, what would have happened had Jesus not died? What's at stake if Jesus was to sit on a throne? You see, Jesus' mind is focused on the things of God. What is God's will? What is God's desire? What has God sent him to do? To be rejected, to be killed, to rise from the dead. The disciples' minds are on earthly things, specifically earthly kingdoms. An earthly kingdom with an earthly king that would have thrown out the Roman oppression and established the nation of Israel as a kingdom forever. Jesus was submissive to the Father's will, that He would come, that He would die, that He would rise from the dead, that He would, by His sacrifice, establish a kingdom that had no end, because it was a kingdom that was in the hearts of men. A kingdom for all of eternity, established at his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus didn't, um, Jesus submitted to the Father's will to be rejected, to die, and it wasn't an easy thing. I mean, what does Jesus say in the garden? Right before he's about to die, Right before he's about to be crucified, he goes to the garden to pray. Right before he's arrested and flogged and beaten. And he says, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but yours. Submitting himself to God's will and desire for his life to be sacrificed. In the beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist declares Jesus this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're familiar with the entire Bible, what were lambs for? Sacrifice. They were sacrificed. This goes all the way back to their time in Egypt when Passover is established and they would sacrifice a lamb and put its blood above the door so that when the angel of death passed over, the firstborn wouldn't die. All pointing forward to a day when the lamb of God, the Messiah, the promised lamb would come and establish the kingdom of God forever by his sacrifice once for all. That Jesus didn't come to establish the kingdom of Israel in Israel, but came to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of men by faith in His sacrifice in their place. That Jesus came to die like a lamb as a sacrifice. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The payment requirement for sin is death death. So what would have happened if Jesus had sat on a throne in Israel and not died? We would all still remain in our sin. And so Jesus came, willingly laid down his 
This is what Hebrews talks about. Have this mind which is yours in Christ. Like Jesus who left his throne in heaven and came down in the form of man, even as a baby, so that he would be sacrificed on a cross. So that those who believe would have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to be the sacrificing king. The king who established his kingdom in the hearts of men by dying in their place. Not by ruling on a throne here. But by giving himself in their place as a sacrifice. Paying for, death, paying for sin. And then by rising from the dead. Overcoming death for all who believe. So my question for you this morning is, do you believe the gospel? That Jesus is the Son of God who came to establish His kingdom in your heart by faith in His death in your place, in His resurrection from the dead. My hope and encouragement to you today is that you would believe the gospel, that you would believe that Jesus came to die for you, that He came so that you might live because he rose from the dead. And this has massive implications for us. So if Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, came not to sit on the throne in Israel, but to be rejected by the elders and to be crucified on a cross and to rise from the dead three days later, uh, that has massive implications for his disciples. I think the disciples in this moment feel those implications. We are your closest followers, and you've come to die? What does that mean for us? Well, Jesus gives us, in a nutshell, what it means or looks like for us to follow him in this next few verses. And so we'll look at the second point for this morning, sacrificing disciples. Now, we have a sacrificing king, and we, in like form, are a sacrificing disciples, followers. So look with me at verse 34, and he says this, So he's just corrected Peter again. He says, you're setting your mind on the things of the earth, not on the things of God. And he says in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So if Jesus is the Christ, Peter's made that confession, and Jesus has told us what that means. I'm the Christ, which means I've come to die. And I've come to rise from the dead. In like form, his disciples come following Jesus, denying ourselves and taking up the cross to follow him. 
Jesus gives us, an, in a nutshell, a picture of what it looks like to follow him. In the one sentence, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That following Jesus can be summed up in that sentence. Denying yourself, taking up your, his cross, and following me. You think about this, like if you um, aspire to something, maybe, maybe you're like, man, I really want to be a loving, faithful husband or a loving, faithful wife. Or maybe, uh, man, I really want to be a, a really loving, faithful, good dad or, or a, a loving, faithful mom. Or maybe it's business. You want to be a successful business person or in your job, be a manager who, who excels at what you do. Or maybe it's in athletics. Anybody ever, if you've ever wanted to be good at something, what do we do? We look to someone who's been there. We look to somebody who's been there. If you've ever been to any kind of teaching seminars, the people who are up there teaching should, hopefully, have some expertise or experience in whatever it is that they're doing. And we go to those things because we want to learn from their experience what they've done and then, in turn, do those things. So if you want to be a good, faithful, loving husband or wife, you look to someone who loves and cares for their husband or wife, and you learn from them to do the same. If you want to be a, uh, a loving faithful uh, mom or dad, you find someone who's parented beyond you and say, hey, can you help guide me? If you want to be uh, an athlete who excels in a particular sport, you learn from those who are good at it. And, in, and this is how the Lord has wired this to work. We look, we see, and we imitate others. That's what we do. It's, it's the way the Lord has wired us, and it's supposed to be that way. And here's the deal. When it comes to following Jesus, it's no different. That when we look to Jesus, our Savior and Lord, we don't go, oh, I don't want to do it His way. No, like, Jesus came and He sacrificed. I really want to follow Jesus in a different way. Can I follow Jesus in a way that, like, is about me and not about sacrifice? It's just about, like, me gaining and growing and flourishing and life and goodness? Uh, no. Following Jesus, being his disciples, means embracing the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus, what he's just outlined for us, is rejection, sacrifice, and resurrection. To be rejected, to die, and to rise from the dead. And Jesus doesn't just say, hey, that's only me. He says, if you want to follow me, crowd 12 disciples, if you want to follow me, it's the same for you. To deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus. That following Jesus, setting our mind on the things of God, not on the things of the world, looks like us sacrificing, like Jesus is sacrificed. It looks like denying yourself. And choosing the way of Jesus over the way of Derek or whoever you are. Every day, as a disciple of Jesus, which at Trovi, we're about delighting in Jesus and making disciples of Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you've put your faith and trust in his death and resurrection, then your life as a disciple 
is one of self-denial. One of laying down your desires. One of sacrificing yourself for His glory and the good of others. Dying to yourself. And every single day, you and I face thousands of decisions. Super quick, fast moments, thoughts that cross your mind. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I talk to that person? Should I not talk to that person? Should I respond to that person? Should I not respond to that person? They said this. What's running through my head right now about them? Like We have all kinds of thousands of moments every single day that we are faced, uh, faced with, either choosing to deny ourselves and, and live an obedient sacrifice like Jesus, or to indulge ourselves what we want at the expense of others. Uh, Paul Tripp, if you know who Paul Tripp is, great. If not, go read his books. He's a great guy. I mean, they're all the same, just written to different people. You want a parent, parent like Jesus. If you want to be a husband or wife, be a husband like Jesus. Like if, they're all the same thing, just packaged towards whatever particular thing. And he explains or defines love as this. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of the other without them deserving it or their reciprocity. I'll say that again. Your self we're not keeping score, or them reciprocating it. And where does Paul Tripp get that definition of love? Jesus. Who willingly sacrificed himself for your good when you did not deserve it. Not only did you not deserve it, when you were his enemies, when we were rejecting rebels, not reciprocating his love. Jesus didn't die for you because you were lovely or loved him. He died for you because he loved you. In the same form, what it looks like for us to follow Jesus is to deny ourselves and take up a life of sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God. Why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? Uh, what, what, do you mean? Uh, what I mean is, it is hard. It is hard work in our minds to choose to sacrifice what we want for someone else's good. Why? Because we, our flesh, our, our fleshly desires are so depraved in sin that they only have an appetite for self until the Holy Spirit awakens them to God. That we... Uh, in sin, before faith in Jesus, only have appetites and desires for selfishness. It's all about me, myself, and I. What do I get out of this? This is, this is why marriages and friendships wreck, fall apart. Selfishness. What I want doing what, I ma what makes me happy, doing what makes me feel better. And our world says, is that really that big of a deal if it doesn't hurt somebody else? Doing what satisfies or fills me. That's what our natural scripts that run through our brains are. 
Do what you want. Do what feels good to you. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, it goes against every grain in your natural sinful flesh. And Jesus is, what Jesus is doing for us is He's unveiling to us kingdom economics. Like for us in, in our world, to set our minds on the things of the world is to live selfish. What do I want? It's better for me to get what I want. And Jesus says to set your mind on the things of God is to say and believe it is better to sacrifice than to have selfish gain. That a life built around sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God is better than selfish gain. That it is better to give than to receive. Right? That's what the Bible says. It is better to lay down our lives for others than it is to have others live for our good and joy. That Jesus unpacks for us His way. Rejection, self-sacrifice, and resurrection and tells us our lives as his followers is meant to be in the same. Self-sacrifice. To lay down our preferences for the good of others. This is when, when Paul unpacks marriage in, in Ephesians. He tells that he unpacks the role of the husband as sacrificing like Jesus has sacrificed for his church giving himself for the church, literally dying for. And he says, if you want to be a loving husband, you die every day for the good of your wife. You lay down your desires every day for the good of your wife. You deny yourself every day for her good and for God's glory in her. And the same form is true in every area of our life. This is what Romans 12 unpacks. He says that uh, our lives are meant to be a living sacrifice. In the same form, Jesus was a physical sacrifice. A disciple's life is meant to be given as a living sacrifice for God's glory and the good of others. That it is better to live a life that is built around sacrifice than one that's built around selfishness. It's not only the way of Jesus, but it's the better way. Jesus says, for, it says that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy, the gladness, the, the better in front of Jesus, he chose to take nails to his hands and feet. To die. In the same form for us, it is better for the joy that is set before us for all of eternity to choose a life of sacrifice for the good of others and for the glory of God, that others might believe the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 29, and everyone who has left in following Jesus, who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
that he makes bold promises about those who sacrifice for his glory. A future eternal reward that far outmatches what we can gain here. So much that Jesus would say, what can a man... Look with me, what does he say? In verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? He's saying it's better for you to live a life of sacrifice for the kingdom of God than to literally own the entire world. There's more gain to be had in self-sacrifice each and every day as we deny ourselves than the world can provide in riches. I mean, think about it. With our minds set on the things of the world, everything you gain and have here, you will lose. No matter how big your bank account is, when all's said and done, you lose it. It's gone. No matter how nice your car is or how, uh, how successful you were in that particular business or how much you gained in this life, it's, it's over when you die. And Jesus says it's better to sacrifice than it is to gain the whole world. So for us, what does it mean or look like for us to set our minds on the things of God and not on the things of the world? Jesus set his mind on the things of God. He didn't set his mind on an earthly kingdom. He set his mind on the things of God, which was to be rejected, to sacrifice himself, and to rise from the dead. For you, what does it look like to choose that life, a life of willing self-sacrifice for the good of others? A life in your marriage, if you're married, where you choose to sacrifice to deny yourself so that your spouse would love Jesus more deeply that day? What would it look like in your singleness to give your life so that others would know Jesus and have good? With your kids, what would it look like for you to parent in a way that is self-sacrificial so that your kids might come to faith in Jesus and you would have, or they would have their good? What about your neighbors? As we live as, as God's people on mission in the world to make disciples, what would it look like for you to live sacrificially towards Steve, my neighbor, or Rashad, or Mark, or the barista at the coffee shop? What would it look like for you to choose a life of self-sacrifice instead of self-serving? To carry yourself in a way that says, I'm going to today deny myself so that God would be glorified and others would see Jesus today. In my home, in my work. And maybe today that starts by you just acknowledging, I don't believe that self-sacrifice is better than selfishness. Maybe just starting at that place of going, Jesus says... It's better to sacrifice, to deny yourself than to gain the whole world. Maybe just today to acknowledge, like, I don't believe that. 
I think wealth, riches, prosperity, comfort, control is going to be better than self-sacrifice. And to just come before our kind, good, gracious God and say, God, I know you say this and I struggle to believe it, so would you help me believe it today? Maybe there's a specific way you have been by the grace and kindness of the Holy Spirit, been aware, awakened, reminded, shown that you have been living for yourself and not self-sacrificially today. Make note of that. Go before your kind, good God in confession and to that husband, wife, friend, neighbor, loved one and own that in confession and repentance before God and them. To say, I'm sorry how the other day I responded because I was just thinking about me and not you. Will you forgive me? To actively choose the way of Jesus, a willing self-sacrifice for God's glory and their good. To choose what Jesus has done for you. Willingly sacrificing himself on a cross so that you might have eternal life. And again, my encouragement to you this morning is if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth that he, the Son of God, came to take your sin upon a cross, die in your place as a sacrifice, and to rise from the dead three days later, that today you would believe the gospel, that you would receive forgiveness of sin, God's mercy and grace, and the promise of eternal life. 